Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, if you care about free expression and freedom generally, there is much to talk about right now. It is good to anchor ourselves in that conversation. When we talk about books being banned and efforts to erase entire concepts and then folks trying to inoculate themselves by saying they weren't even talking about those concepts until they learn that actually running away from those ideas doesn't make you safe. These are not entirely new conversations or struggles, but our past has not been fully grappled with or understood, and that has everything to do with what's happening now and how we can address it. History is alive and active, and you are a part of it. So today we're going to re-air a conversation that we had in January of 2017 with historian Ellen Schrecker, an expert on McCarthyism and its impacts. I don't doubt that you will understand the relevance and the meaning in 2023. That is coming up, but first we'll take a quick look back at some recent press. The Wall Street Journal gave a crash course on the true meaning of freedom under capitalism with its piece, To Save Money, Maybe You Should Skip Breakfast. Ironically, the piece was behind a paywall. As Luca Goldmansor wrote for Fair.org, the absurdity of that headline is self-apparent, and it was met with bewilderment by readers who were surprised to realize it lacked even a tinge of sarcasm. As one noted, if you skip breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you can save even more money. The article bears examination because it highlights the corporate media's determination to convince workers and consumers that inflation means that resources are scarce and not that immensely profitable corporations are ripping us off. Other than its cruel recommendation, the article by economics reporter Gabriel Rubin was a kind of mundane report about rising costs of eggs, juice, cereal, and coffee. But it neglected to mention that in the case of the egg industry, for example, which saw prices rise 138% over 2022, advocacy groups like Farm Action are sounding the alarm on potential collusion to price gouge under the guise of an avian flu outbreak and also inflation. The big players in the industry include Calmain Foods, Roseacre Farms, Versova Holdings, and Hillendale Farms. But Calmain Foods alone controls approximately 20% of the egg market and dwarfs its nearest competitor, according to Farm Action's letter to the Federal Trade Commission requesting an investigation of the industry. Central to Farm Action's case is their determination that supply chain disruptions do not justify the dramatic increase in egg prices. According to the USDA, the letter notes the total loss of egg-laying hens to the avian flu in 2022 was about 43 million birds, which sounds substantial, but after accounting for chicks hatched during the year, it was really never more than 7 to 8% lower than the year prior. But despite that marginal effect, Rubin wrote that the outbreak's impact has devastated poultry flocks across the U.S., 
He also blamed the war in Ukraine for drastic price increases in eggs. But contrary to the journal's assertions, the evidence shows that the more than doubling of egg prices over the past year is disproportionately high compared to losses in production. And at the same time that these companies are acting as though their hands are tied by supply disruptions, well, their profits have skyrocketed. From May through November of 2022, for example, CalMain saw their gross profits increase tenfold. So instead of acknowledging this damning evidence, the Wall Street Journal article referred to a perfect storm of supply disruptions. That's a framing that bolsters this act of God narrative that is being promoted by industry trade strategists. It's meant to rid companies of any responsibility for price hikes. As food insecurity grows with inflating prices, Corporate media continue to insist that the supposed efficiency of the free market is doing the best it can. In doing so, they continue to expose what capitalist freedom really means. You don't have to stick with this program because you've always got the option of starving. If the Wall Street Journal and others were truly concerned with the impact of inflating egg prices on consumers, they wouldn't make the callous and indifferent suggestion that people skip a meal. They would take on the powerful and profitable corporations that continue to use their monopoly power to extract maximum profit at the expense of people's well-being and, you know, their breakfast. You are listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. When we spoke with McCarthyism expert Ellen Schrecker in January of 2017, we were in a moment of fervent conversation about possible Russian involvement in U.S. elections, as we are now and as we are likely to be in the future. The point isn't that all of that is meaningless, only that the search for an outside enemy who might be turning our earnest best interests against us is misguided. That if we want to have a serious conversation about what we want U.S. society to look like and why it doesn't look like that, we will need to engage genuinely in examination of this country's history and this country's policies and practices and that a debate around this country's history can't go forward without real acknowledgement of the impacts of previous efforts to root out the enemy within and what that meant. Here again is that 2017 interview with Ellen Schrecker, starting with my introduction. have major media afroth with tales of Russian hacking of the presidential election, giving millions of Americans the idea that Russian agents actually tampered with voting machines. A Democratic president just signed off on something called the Countering Disinformation and Propaganda Act, tasked to aim communications at foreign audiences to countermessage the ideas of state-defined terrorists and other extremists 
extremists in the information space. That was part of the National Defense Authorization Act, a previous iteration of which eliminated parts of the Smith-Munt Act that prevented the U.S. government from propagandizing domestic audiences. And while legislation making its way through Congress sets up an interagency committee empowered to target Russian media manipulation, along with such other duties as the president, that would be Trump, may designate, a new website purports to serve as a watch list on professors deemed guilty of advancing leftist propaganda in the classroom. The Washington Post trumpets a completely unfounded story about Russians hacking the electrical grid in Vermont a few weeks after promoting a report by an anonymous group on websites accused of purveying fake news in service of a Russian campaign to undermine American interests. And the Wall Street Journal declares it wouldn't be objective to use the word lie when referring to Donald Trump's false statements. It is quite a moment. And while not everything old is new again, it's better not to pretend this is this country's first excursion into enemies' lists and official encouragement to ferret out the insufficiently patriotic. The first inclination is to evoke the McCarthy era. In what ways does and doesn't the present moment echo that time? And what are the threads that connect that not-so-long-ago period to today? We're joined now by Ellen Schrecker, now retired professor of American history at Yeshiva University and author of, among other titles, Many Are the Crimes, McCarthyism in America and No Ivory Tower, McCarthyism in the Universities. She joins us by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Ellen Schrecker. Thank you very much. And it's a pleasure to be talking with you. Well, I know that that introduction was sort of overwhelming. I meant it to be. I think folks are feeling overwhelmed. It's almost a key feature of the present moment. And that feeling, who do you trust, is the enemy of my enemy, my friend, that feeling can be instrumentalized, if you will. Confusion and fear lead people to accept things and do things that they might not do otherwise. When we think about McCarthyism, we tend, naturally enough, to think about Joe McCarthy. But I wonder, do you think in a way that the lessons such as they are might lie less in him than in what that time brought out in other people? Very much so. McCarthy was a convenient figurehead. He was an aberrant personality. He was a guy who knew how to play the press brilliantly. But actually, he came rather late to the movement that he gave his name to. He didn't really surface until 1950, by which point there had been years of hearings by the House Un-American Activities Committee. The federal government had imposed a very ideological uh, loyalty security program on its employees. McCarthyism in other words, was going full steam even before McCarthy showed up at the station. And I think the main thing that we have to be careful about is not to confuse McCarthy with McCarthyism, because McCarthyism was a much broader movement, and similarly, not to sort of think that Trump is everything that is happening today. 
because I think what is happening today is the fruit of 40 years of a concerted right-wing conservative effort to delegitimize a lot of what we would consider liberal, moderate orthodoxy, to delegitimize things like climate change, for example, which, you know, is pretty scary. McCarthyism was the same way. What we saw in the 1950s was a very broad-based movement designed ostensibly to eliminate all the influence of American communism and all the people involved with it and the ideas and the organizations connected to it, to eliminate that from American life. Now, there were communists. I mean, one of the myths of the McCarthy period was that McCarthy and the HUAC and all the other sort of second-tier witch hunters were targeting innocent people. Well, they were and they weren't. These people were certainly innocent of crimes. They hadn't done anything wrong. But politically, these were people on the left. These were people, many of them, probably the vast majority of them, the people who were called up by committees or blacklisted, had had some connection to the American Communist Party and who were still willing to defy the status quo, the sort of standard Cold War consensus, enough to refuse to name names, to refuse to collaborate with this witch-hunting machine. And it was a machine. And so what we saw was a drive against the left and one that was incredibly successful. I mean, that's the thing that we we can't just sort of say, look at the 1950s and say, oh, McCarthy, you know, he was censored by the Senate. Everything turned out fine. Well, everything didn't turn out fine. We ended up with a war in Vietnam, among other things. But also what had happened was that the American political spectrum narrowed, that a whole bunch of ideas and causes kind of disappeared from American political discourse and American political life. And I can give you examples from the labor movement that stopped trying to organize white-collar workers, for example, or from the civil rights movement, which in the late 1940s had a very strong kind of economic justice component. And that was completely wiped out, largely because many of the people who were pushing this broader notion of what civil rights was did have some communist connections, were concerned about issues of economic class, and were simply booted out of the civil rights movement, the mainstream civil rights movement, which was trying to protect itself against some very ferocious red baiting. So what we see as a result of McCarthyism, is a much narrower range of political ideas that impoverished the American political scene and put a stop to creating a much stronger safety net, for example. Mm -hmm. We're seeing it now with an attempt of the Republicans to roll back Obamacare. Well, back in the late 1940s, President Truman wanted to get the equivalent of Medicare for all. You know, he wanted a 
full federal financing of health care, the same as that that exists throughout much of the industrialized world. But he was attacked. It was considered, quote unquote, socialized medicine. And it has yet to return to American politics. Yes, you hear folks now saying, we'll survive this, you know, like we survived McCarthyism. I mean, we we post-date it, you know, but there were, I think we forget that there were costs, you know, that actual people and actual, as you point out, causes were hurt. There was fallout there. And it's not simply enough to say, well, we're going to get through it as though there's no damage. Right. I think that's very true. And what I would like to emphasize is one of the reasons there was so much damage and one of the reasons why so many people lost their jobs and even more people just shut up. I'll give you one example of this is I taught late 20th century American history. U.S. since 1945 was my main course. And I would talk about McCarthyism. And then I would ask my students to talk about the anti-war movement against the Korean War, which began in 1950 and was every bit as unpopular, according to the polls, as the Vietnam War was. But we don't know that Mm -hmm. very well. And I would be greeted by silence in my classes, and I'd say, yeah, that's the right answer. (laughs) In other words, McCarthyism had thoroughly prevented any attempt to criticize the Korean War. In my writing, I always sort of say, well, wait a minute, what about the books that weren't written, the movies that weren't made, the unions that weren't organized? In other words, the damage from McCarthyism is not just people losing their jobs or going to jail, but all of the movements, all of the projects, all of the books and ideas that weren't out there in American life. And that's the kind of thing that's very scary, because we'll never know. Right. What I think is responsible for a lot of that and a lot of the self-censorship, which was really ferocious during that period, was the collaboration of what we could see as the moderate middle, the willingness, not just of politicians or journalists, but university presidents and hospital administrators, all kinds of people to go along with McCarthyism, to somehow buy into the notion that the Constitution protected everybody but communists. And so what we got in the 1950s was institution after institution within civil society, all the way up to and including the Supreme Court, refusing to defend the rights of individuals who were attacked during this period and operating on the assumption that somehow if you were named by HUAC, and took the Fifth Amendment, there was something wrong with you. And people knew better. That was what gave McCarthyism so much power, was this collaboration of the employers of the mainstream media, of the legal system, you name it, to go along with this anti-communist purge. 
Well, I remember hearing a talk long ago by Robert Kuttner in which he talked about the abandonment of professional ethics. And this is in the 90s, I guess, early 2000s. He was talking about, you know, lawyers saying, okay, I can squint and make the law say that torture is okay. You know, doctors saying, okay, I can make force-feeding prisoners at Guantanamo Square with my Hippocratic Oath. You know, there's no competing ethics with that that is set out by political power, you know, and that does more than undermine resistance. I mean, there's no kind of alternate set of values in evidence for people. Exactly, exactly. Although, to their credit, one has to say, the liberals did wake up. Mm-hmm. You know, it took a while. It took really until the mid to late uh, 50s for the Supreme Court to begin to rule that some of the practices of the red baiters were wrong for the civil rights movement to pick up again, although in a somewhat attenuated way. Right. There was no longer this stress on economic justice, but rather on sort of legal rights and civil rights, important as they were. It wasn't the whole story of racial inequality in America by any means. Right. I think the important thing is to avoid going along with this, these watch lists. And there is hope. Let me ask you about about that hope, because the word watch list itself, I think, for many people sends a shiver. But at least with regard to universities in particular, we are seeing pushback. So let me just draw you out on that. Where are you seeing resistance? Okay. well, I am seeing resistance in a number of places with regard to some of these threats, shall we say, to civil liberties and civil rights. One of the most alarming ones is this notion of a registry of American Muslims. And what we're hearing from a number of groups and individuals is what I call the King of Denmark moment, which comes from the experience during World War II when the Third Reich Hitler invaded Denmark and forced all the Danish Jews to wear yellow stars, and the King of Denmark put on a yellow star as well, Mm -hmm. obviously showing a great deal of courage there. And we are hearing a number of groups and individuals saying, well, if it comes to that in this country, I'm going to register as a Muslim too. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, we've actually seen that happen within the academic community with this professor's blacklist that was published of started out some 200 names. It's a weird little list because it doesn't by any means list all the more serious leftists and political activists within the academic community. It seems to be a kind of hodgepodge. I think many of them probably right-wing students who just sent in the names of professors who gave them C's. (laughs) But anyhow, that list was published, and I began getting some interesting things in my inbox, including a letter that was sent from about 100 faculty members at Notre Dame, which is very interesting. It's a Catholic school. You know, you would expect the faculty there to be rather conservative. But here comes the fighting Irish. And they sent a letter or an email to the blacklisting organization saying, put us on the list. 
And then I know that professors at the University of Michigan began to do the same thing. And then an organization called the American Association of University Professors that I had been active with, that is the main sort of guardian of academic freedom, the main institutional guardian of academic freedom in this country, sent a letter to its members telling us all where to send our names in as well. So there is pushback. And more pushback than there had been during the McCarthy period. For example, during the McCarthy period, the American Association of University Professors, AAUP, simply didn't do a thing. About 100 faculty members were fired, and the AAUP, which had been theoretically supposed to look into these cases, didn't lift a finger. And we saw that throughout American society. The ACLU, for example, during the McCarthy period, would not defend anybody who had been a member of the Communist Party unless they had recanted seriously. I don't think you'd see that today. I do think that some of these organizations are much wiser and more willing to fight back. But, and let me emphasize this point, there are ways in which it's much worse. And that's because of the way in which institutions like the universities, and I'm particularly concerned about the universities, have been completely hollowed out over the past 40 years. There have been structural changes, many of them motivated by politically conservative movements to crack down on universities, and it's done through defunding, through state legislatures no longer as willing to support higher education as they had been in the 1950s. Right. Any final thoughts? Well, I think the main thing is really to remember above all that what we're seeing is the result of a 40-year assault on the sort of liberal mainstream. It's not an assault on the left like McCarthyism, but rather on the American mind, if I can put it that way. And so what we're seeing is people in power now probably sponsored in one way or another by corporate interests. Certainly, we know that the climate denial has very strong ties to the oil and gas industry. And it's this kind of corporate ideological assault on reality, as it were, that is so dangerous and that, you know, is not just Trump. We've been speaking with Ellen Schrecker. Her most recent book is The Lost Soul of Higher Education, Corporatization, the Assault on Academic Freedom, and the End of the American University. Ellen Schrecker, thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. That was historian Alan Schrecker speaking with Counterspin in 2017. You've been listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.